Listener Production. G'day, you're listening to episode 82 of the Howie Games Part B featuring the great man himself, Grant Hackett. Let's dive back in. Sorry about the pun. So, mate, I've changed the batteries. You've checked the ASX is going okay, so <laughs> everything's all right, is we're all, it? We're all sweet. Okay, we're, all we're good. good. We're good. Um, we mentioned earlier on Malouli and, and 2008. Yeah. Um, beat you by bugger all into a sil- uh, silver, which in your words is a failure, not mine. <laughs> You retired, you came back, you retired again. Hmm. The, explain to me why uh, percentage-wise compared to not other sports but percentage-wise, it's not easy for swimmers when they retire. Hmm. And there's been a lot of cases in hmm. Australia and around the world. You know, I've had Liesler on this show, I've had Ian on this show. Hmm. Why when you stop swimming can things start to... I don't even know the words to use, but closing on you, so to speak. Yeah, so I think um, there's probably a few hypotheses that you can actually, you know, look at. I mean, I think the biggest thing I can, when you say those names and I think about other sports and why our sport could have a higher percentage of things, people that fall into depression or, you know, go through some dramatic life changes um, post their careers, swimming you start at a very, very young age. And the intensity of the training is probably much more for, say, an eight or nine-year-old if you're going, you know, sometimes when I was 10, I was training eight times a week. (sighs) So the intensity of the training and the fact that your identity is so closely linked to that particular sport from such a young age, it's not like other sports where you probably progress through a little bit more, a little bit slower, and it intensifies probably a little bit later in life. So I think once that is lost um, at a point in time, there is probably a huge destabilizing factor in your life that you didn't really anticipate or know how to deal with until you get there. And it's very difficult to foresee coming. I mean, I know there's lots of people that have transitions in life. There's transitions from divorce, you know, going to a relationship where you've got kids at home to living on your own again, or, you know, you've been working the the same job or industry for 30 or 40 years, and all of a sudden you find yourself retired. I mean, Mm. that is a huge transition. But one where you come from, one where you've been doing it since you were four or five, to then when you're close to 30, um, is probably a different one. And when it's been so public and everyone knows you as that, like still when I walk down the street, I, I really consider myself retired after Beijing and I um, people still tell me about the moment or the sport or this or that or you get referred to as the swimmer or you know, great Olympian or whatever it might be. I'm like, oh, I'm not that anymore. I don't think that of myself mm. and uh, I don't refer to myself like that. I look at what I'm doing now and what I'm passionate about now. But the reality is your identity is so closely intertwined with that from people's perceptions and how to deal with it. There is just so many factors and there's so much expectation that you put on yourself and then you transition out of that. there, There are moments when it's hard and if you're not in the right relationship or you've you know, probably put yourself in a position where things aren't good on one side of the ledger or the other or whatever it might be, there are factors that you know, the, the walls start closing in and everyone saw you as this great champion, so why would I ask for help? So how did you deal with the experience? Um, I think for me, I, I found, you know, my, my personal life um, probably wasn't going that well as people saw quite quite publicly and then all of a sudden you, you're in this big transition and it's quite destabilising and you're trying to find your feet. I mean, you go... You're the global CEO of what you do when you're an Olympic champion mm. or a world champion for, for that long. And then all of a sudden you walk into, you know, uh, the, the bank on a Monday morning. You're not the best at the table. And that's your reality. So, 
And yet you're so used to being in that space versus that. And you've got to roll up the sleeves. You've got to work hard. You've got to eat humble pie and then actually make some progress. Um, and that's only done through hard work. And I used to think back, what was I doing at 12 or 13 when I was that had that ambition and drive but wasn't there yet and I would do anything to get there. So I always, even today, put myself back in that mindset because that's, that's the moment where things are built. Um, but at the same time, you don't know how to deal with that. Like things aren't going well at home. There's a lot big change in your work environment. There's always the the public pressure that you have to deal with at the time. And and everyone goes through ups and downs in life. And uh, and to be honest, I wasn't one of those people who ever asked for help. I was known as this tough guy who could push through anything, who could go th- get through any sort of adversity with a partially collapsed lung and still win Olympic games. And so you build this level of BS almost around yourself and who you are and your lack of vulnerability just is incredible. So I, I think for me, I just had to, a lot of lessons that I had to learn in, in very dramatic and hard and very public ways, which was even more destabilizing because I told you before, I'm naturally a private person. Mm. So when you're dirty laundry... Um, gets aired out, and when it gets aired out in a context which is not exactly accurate, too, it's um, it's really, really challenging, and it, it just you, you're in this spiral. And um, you know, so for me, I had to sort of claw my way out one rock at a time, to be honest. What is it like, Hacky? And I don't. I said to you at the start, mm. I don't want to talk specifics mm. with you. What is it like when you are in? So you've been in the middle of the media storm when you're the golden boy with a medal. What's yep. it like when you're in the middle of the media storm where things have gone wrong personally? Yeah, so it's funny. When you're successful and when you're at the top of your game and you can read an article about yourself, it promotes you a bit as being way too good or <laughs> this amazing human or this superhero that you're not. That's that's the first thing I, I learn upon reflection now. Not back then. You get right into it. Mm. Hey, yeah, I've done that well. Everyone thinks that. They're fantastic. You know, you're getting validated by all this external stuff. Then when it's bad and you get all these horrible things written about you or questions or innuendo or speculation around you, um, it's actually not that bad because that stuff's not actually accurate too. So you got to know when it stops and starts. And it actually pulled me back into myself and going, you know what, I need to validate things with myself. I need to be proud of myself and have my own sense of purpose, do the things that I want to do. And so when I have success now, I honestly do not care what anybody else thinks or feels about that. I honestly only reflect on it the way I feel and how I validate it, and that is it. I just leave it there. And I don't look at that as a big part of my personality or reflecting who I am. Um, Just because I'm good at one thing or achieved at one thing doesn't make me that person. And it's also on the other side, just because you go through a bad time, um, make some poor decisions um, and hurt yourself pretty badly and the the loved ones around you that obviously get affected by that too. It doesn't mean you stay there and that doesn't mean that's who you are either. It doesn't define you those moments. And so I think I've been able to build a a stronger person from those things because I was willing to learn. I wasn't going to stay there. Um, I wasn't going to wallow in my own self-pity in those situations. And you do for a bit, don't get me wrong, because it is bloody difficult and you don't know which direction to go. How do I put one foot in front of the other here, which before seemed so easy and effortless and everything would always come together. So I learn a lot about myself and what's important to myself and I built a new perspective on a lot of things in life. So I think it's actually going to make me a a lot better father and, you know, a lot better partner and, um, you know, because I've taken those lessons and I took them very, very seriously and it was very, very difficult. But, yeah, you know, you think back to it now and you think, how how did I get through those difficult situations because it was a nightmare. What did you learn about mental health during that time? 
Oh, I learned that it's a real thing. It's a real thing because, you know, when you're this athlete and mm. you, you feel invincible through periods and everything just comes to you easy, um, you know, you don't really have too, too many issues that you have to consider. Then you go through the down, the dark times, the, tra- the changes, the transitions, the, the, the uncertainty, the destabilizing things and then, like, it's a real thing. Like, you know, some, sometimes you just don't want to get out of bed. You want to hide. You want to be isolated. Um, you don't want to have to, to deal with uh, the next day. And, um, and I had this real lack of vulnerability. I didn't want to ask for help. I didn't know how to ask for help probably more than anything else. So, and I, I realise even with my partner now, if I'm having a good or bad day, I find if I deal with it, then and there, and I, I talk about it, I discuss it, and she gets very proud of me when I have my, my vulnerable, vulnerable moments. Um, she goes, how you spoke to me is how you should speak to your team as a leader. You know what I mean? She'll, she'll often say those sorts of things to me. Um, but I find if I defuse things as I go along, I don't get this big buildup of hiding and hiding and burying and burying and just shoveling it somewhere where it shouldn't be. I feel like I, I do that a lot better now, but I still have to keep a check and balance on myself because I know what I'm like. I know how I'm built. Um, and I know how far I can push myself, hence the consequences can be greater when you get yourself into to that hole eventually. So um, self-awareness as a growing and uh, growing and dealing with stuff has, has been a lot better. But yeah, you've, you've you got a mental health. It's, it's one of those things where you think if you're not dealing with it now, you will one day, whatever it might be. I don't find I'm one of these people that fall into manic depression. I'm not like that. I know mm-hmm. people have real mental health issues from the day they're born. You know, there's just something there that is very difficult for them to manage, whether it's a chemical imbalance or whatever it might be, that the physicality of those things that I don't truly understand. But I realize just mental health can come. You could be a normal, stable person, have a very, you know, nice life and good friends and good support around you. And then all of a sudden you can go through a transition of something so dramatic or change or lose someone and you get into this situational depression that you never saw coming, that you never thought you would deal with. You never thought it would be your problem and then all of a sudden it is. And I realise, you know what? Anybody who plays a big game in life and tries to achieve things or do things or might have a public profile is going to go through that. I guarantee you. So no matter who you are, it does not discriminate whether you're from Bill Gates down. Fascinating you use the word vulnerable here in Victoria, um, a couple of successful AFL teams, Richmond and Collingwood, I think their coaches, Damien Hardwick and Nathan Buckley, have embraced that vulnerability and working here at Triple M, their players come into the box and their players love them for it, Hacky, mm. that these people are prepared to stand up in front of them and talk about their greatest fears mm. and concerns it can be a powerful thing a powerful thing it is and it's it's hard because not every environment or every situation feels like it can be safe to be vulnerable no of course not so and it's not always appropriate right so you've got to pick and choose when those moments are right but when you're dealing in like high octane sports like that and there's high expectations on you. You think you do not have time to do that, but often enough, it is the one thing that is missing to get that extra few percent out of people. Because we're all just people at the end of the day. We've all got our, our, our issues, our things we're dealing with. Our, you know, whether it's even in a good situation where you just can't make that next step and you don't know why. And I think um, vulnerability, getting to know people. The softer skills are absolutely critical for leadership and 
um, you know, for be- better, healthier relationships to, to achieving things more than ever. And I think we're really getting to understand that a little bit more. This whole, I almost call it like the farmer mentality. There can never be a problem. I've got to push through everything. I've got to carry the world on my shoulders and I've got to do it constantly. It is not a sustainable way of living. And I think when you do get vulnerable, you connect with people because they see you as a human being. And when, you've, when you're winning or you're doing things successfully, people think, oh, it's easy for that person and they probably can't relate as much. But as soon as you relate and tell a story or, or just be open and honest about the way things really are for you, I think people get to connect a lot more and feel a lot more supported. It's a fascinating discussion. A question that few people will be interested, but I am with my industry. You spent time reading the sport on Channel 9. I've had the great pleasure of working with a lot of athletes that have transitioned from sport to media and it fascinates me how little feedback you get Mm. in the media industry and every athlete tells you they come from a position where they had constant feedback. Mm. This is not about Channel 9. Did, Did they help you in that role to be as good as you could be or were you left on your own? It was kind of one of those things. It's a bizarre question in a way. Yeah, it is. I mean, I definitely didn't have the training to be able to do that to the degree that you need to be successful. I just didn't understand what was required. So I literally did a test and then I think the next weekend I was basically reading the news Mm. um, in the sport. So it was, um, yeah, I mean, you don't get the everyday coaching that you need in the direction that you're used to. And there's, there's two parts to that, right? One is when I'm successful, I felt like even with my boss and my work that I do today, my chairman, I'm always getting feedback off him. I'm always asking for something critical so I can improve. But sometimes when I give that to other people, they're not used to the constant feedback loop that I've had throughout sport that made me better that I didn't take personally. When my coach was having a go at me and my technique wasn't right or I didn't do this well, I didn't do that well. It wasn't because he was trying to have a go at me or he didn't like me. It was because he was trying to make me better and I knew that. And I wanted to make me better. So I was like, tell me. But not everyone else is receptive to that as well. So yeah, Especially not in the media, mate. Correct. And that's why it doesn't happen to the degree that it would in sport that your people like me who are built like me and have been through that sort of life um, would expect to receive. So there's this, on- there's this you know, lack of feedback that you receive um, that you actually need to, to be better, particularly in the short time frame um, in trying to achieve something like that and doing something that is easy to do but hard to do well is the way I sort of reflected on that. I think now if I ever did something like that, I know it's so much better, the media is so much better, how it works and how I even have watched the news and the readers since then um, and understanding how that that whole dynamic works, you, you could do it with a lot more capability and understanding and appreciation and I'd also be myself too. I think that was the biggest thing I reflected on. I just wasn't myself. I, it was a bit sterile, that whole environment. From the outside looking in, mm. I'll be honest with you, mate, because yeah. I, I remember it clearly and yeah. I, I was in the Channel 10 newsroom at the time and I remember thinking, wow, this bloke is so eloquent as being proven here. If someone sat with him for half an hour, he would dominate this. Mm. He would do it so well. But to me, mm. it looked like you were trying to be a caricature 
of what a sports reader or a newsreader is and rather than right. being Grant Hackett. Yeah, I took my own perceptions of what I thought it yes. should be and tried to be that instead yes. of being myself where now I would have a totally different view. Yeah. I almost wouldn't care. I'd just be who I am, read it out loud, have a bit of a laugh here. And you'd crush it as a result. And you'd probably do so much better. Yeah. And that's just one of those lessons in life. So even though I didn't get to the success by any means that I would have wanted in something like that, I certainly took away the lessons from it. And I still, when I watch someone reading the sport today, think about that and think about what I would do differently. So, and I'm used to that. And it's not something personal. That's just growing and learning and, you know, succeeding and failing. People's ask, oh, you know, you've always, people hear about your successes when you've been in a position like mine more than anything else. But I say I've actually failed in more things and lost more races and lost more things than I've actually won or succeeded in. It's just that's part of the journey. You you see the last 1% of the journey or maybe 5% max where the other 90 or 95 mm. was trial and error and that's that's the way life is. Congratulations to you on a personal level. I've been Thank reading you. the paper that you're recently engaged. Yep. And you're having another child. Yep. Um, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, our children are a similar age. You've mm. got twins that are 10, you were yep. telling me. Yep. What does being a father mean to you? Oh, I, I love it. Like, I absolutely love it. It is my favourite thing to do. So, um, you know, I spend a lot of time now with my kids and um, it's, I don't know, it's the most enjoyable aspect of anything that I do all week is just spending time, you know, whether it's building Lego with my son or whether it's just playing down the park with my daughter or whatever it might be and just... Um, I think I'm just a lot more mature now around fatherhood. So just looking, we got a little boy um, on the way, Jew Australia Day, ironically enough. And, uh, you know, just the, the excitement and the deep sense of happiness I, I feel around that is, is yeah, it's um, it's just a really nice part of life right now. And, I, and I'm making sure that I'm really enjoying it. So, no, it's, it's the best thing um, or best feeling in the world, I might add, just to be able to go, I've been through those ups and downs in life. And you know, your kids are going to go through their own ups and downs in their own way. And be, to be able to have those experiences, to be able to share, to be able to guide, I, I look at more of that as a, as a positive thing now because it's made me a more rounded person. And I think, in fact, it's just made me a much better dad or capable dad. And you're prepared to go back in the trenches after a 10-year gap? <laughs> I am, no, I am. it's not all, uh, you know, red cheeks and smiles and first oh, teeth hacky. Well, everybody knows how difficult that yeah. initial period is yeah. who's had kids, kids before, so... I do know. Because it's, it's quite the gap. Oh, people don't understand, like, because you don't get much back for at first, right? Like, it's a, it's a lot of crying. It's a lot of, you know, changing the nappies and mm. just feeding and that's and sleeping and that's kind of it. Um, but it, it, at the same time, it's the most beautiful moment in your life w watching, you know, your, your own offspring develop and grow. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't wait for it all. To be honest, like I said, life feels so settled and focused and nice. I, I think I'm just enjoying all that, all the moments um, that are happening now. And I went through a period where I didn't get to spend much time with my kids, and that was the deepest and darkest period of my life. So I actually have such an appreciation for that wake up in the middle of the night, or I need this, or I do that, or I, you know. So I actually probably have a, a bit of a different perspective to to a lot of people that have been able to have their kids every single time they come home from work and spend time mm. with them on the weekend, teach them how to do stuff where I've missed out on periods of that. And uh, 
and they they have been very difficult to to manage at an emotional level. So for me, I know that stuff's going to be tough. I know it's hard. I know it can be stressful, but at the same time, bring it on because you know I've missed out enough of that too. It's a it's a very personal question. I'll ask you. You answer it as you would. A lot of people go through that situation. Mm. Um, I hope it never happens to me. I'm, there's no reason why it would happen to me, but it makes me physically yeah. ill to think about being separated from your own children. And as I said, a lot of people are forced to go through that for various reasons. How did you deal with that personally? Oh, I don't think I dealt with it very well in a lot of pieces. Well, I think. How could you though? How could yeah. you deal with that well? And, and when it means the world to you, like it's not like I was one of these people who didn't want to be a dad or mm. wanted to avoid, like I wanted to do everything I could to, to be there. So... Um, it's just, I don't know, you just don't deal with it through periods to be totally frank and then you learn to dust yourself off and, and get back up and try and make things work again and you kind of just find your feet eventually. And when you're living a public life, that is not easy too. Like I said, that just amplifies or amplifies or exaggerates the entire situation and all the emotion that you feel underneath and, it, and, it, and you feel... Um, that deep sense of shame too because it's a it's a big failure of something that you really thought you would be not easily successful at but you were thought would work out um and and when it doesn't it, it is honest it shatters your entire world much more than losing a swimming race trust me so uh, for me i just found my way through that i found my feet you learn how to make it work you put more time and effort into it you you learn a lot about yourself through those situations through those adversities and i did work out there was just no magic bullet it's a day-by-day proposition when you're going through all that sort of stuff and when you have to grow and learn and uh and i think when i took a little bit of a backseat on stuff and relaxed a little bit more about it, took a little bit of a different perspective, almost let go of certain things too. Letting go is a very powerful part of the process for me. Um, things fall in place so much easier then. Um, but it certainly was was a journey and, it, and it's something that continues to, to be challenging in the sense that I spend, you know, I'm <clears throat> obviously having um, children right now and you get the opportunity to spend every day but with the, the twins you know we obviously share time and share custody you get this intense amount of time and then all of a sudden they've gone back to their mum's house which is great you know they've got to obviously spend that that time with both mum and dad as much as they can but there's an emptiness that goes with that too and you just miss them and you think oh I just want to see them when they come home from school today but you got to wait till next week so it's a, it's a challenging thing and you just learn to deal with it day by day and, and you take it as it comes and you just make the most of the time that you actually have and kids don't always stay kids forever ever too you know like that, that relationship is evolving and changing all the time more of Grant in a moment. Last episode of the show, we featured leg-spinning wizard Farwood Ahmed. The feedback on social media at MarkHoward03 has been off the scale. It seems you good people were blown away by Farwood's phenomenal story as much as I was. Thank you so much for all the feedback. It's great to hear what you guys and girls take from the show, where you're listening, and so many more things. So please continue to send it through. Alrighty, Farwood. This is a man who faced enormous challenges to succeed in his chosen sport, enormous challenges. There was more threats. There was like a, you're getting phone calls and you're getting like a letters and stuff, you know, and they just threaten you and they say, oh, wherever you are, we're going to find you. And this just the phone call make you like a really scared, you know, like. So you were getting know, these phone calls? Everyone's was getting, you know, and they says, oh, if you do this, same thing going to happen. We're not, we're not going to let you go anywhere. What's it like when you're personally being threatened for your life? 
it's it's really hard. Even when I came here, I was still like uh, getting scared. You know, my family there, my friends is uh, one of my friend got killed as well in the bomb blast as well in the suicide bomb blast and. There was like a terrible one of my friend got kidnapped. He was a good cricketer. He was a good first-class cricketer. He took, I think, more than 300 wickets and he was almost close to play for Pakistan. He got kidnapped and got killed as well. He got killed? Yeah, got killed. That is Farwood Ahmed on episode 81 of the Howie Games. Right up, back to Hacky. Do you ever wish... It's just sort of dad-to-dad talk now, which is not normally what we do in the Howie Games. <laughs> my kids are on age now nine and seven about to turn 10 and eight and you would never want it for them but I almost wish I could hit stop on them now Mm. and they could stay at that age where they are now where they're now adventurous they can travel with you they can surf with you they can run play cricket you can share experiences together but they still look up to you as the divine (laughs) king of the world yeah you know what I mean yeah I'm really frightened yeah. And my two are so tight. I'm really frightened about what's going to happen when they're 15 and 13. I'm sure it'll be equally as wonderful, but I'm frightened about what's next. Yeah, it, I totally understand what you're saying because even when you look back on photos and you think, oh, that moment was so nice, you'd almost kill to go back to that. But what I have found and embraced is that every single, I guess, point in time and period. every time they, yeah, is, is a different period and a different um, learning in that and a different emotion and a different mm. connection um, with them. And there's so many various challenges that come along with that. But there, there is um, almost more satisfaction that come along with it too. I remember one time when the twins were very young and I was complaining to one of the guys I was actually doing my MBA with and he, I said, oh, we've got this happening at the moment. And I think a little girl, she had... Um, she needed suspension because she had uh, indigestion happening all the time. She had sort of heartburn. And uh, and he goes, trust me, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. <laughs> so I think, I, I think we've all got that to, to look forward to. But, yeah, it's, it, it, I think as I, I'm, you, you kind of embrace those various phases and, you know, you go through stages when they're, you know, obviously turning into teenagers and then the, the, the next step and there's always something to learn. Oh, I love it. My son, my daughter, 10 at the moment, just how active they are and how much you want to do. It's exactly your point before, how engaged they are. They want to do stuff. They still mm. look up to you. Um, and yet you can sort of still, you can rationalise with them now at the same time and they get things and just watching them evolve is, is such a beautiful process and watching them come into themselves and be their own person and just what they're like. I, I had this... Um, I've been very, very fortunate, you know, given my my background to, to know a few people. And one of my son's heroes was Usain Bolt. And um, when he was here in Melbourne, I gave a couple of mates a call and said, oh, look, you know, sort of met Usain a few times. Would you mind if my son and I um, just came and said hello? And it's not something I would normally do, but he came home one day and he said, oh, my heroes are Usain Bolt and Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> so, which is probably half the kids in the world. Ronaldo's like, a big get. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> You're not getting that one. That's not next week. But it was he's just a beautiful little soul. And it was funny, I just, you know, um, opened up the door in the hotel room he was staying at and he was just sitting at the desk. And my son, I said, oh, mate, you know, said you were going to meet someone special. And he just walked over and hugged him. And Usain was amazing with him. It was beautiful. And he, he got all teary, my son. It was absolutely gorgeous. So, um, 
and you just, I just thought to myself, I just love the person he is. He's just so connected, so warm, so engaged. He's such a compassionate person. So, yeah, you get just proud of these moments as, as, as they get older and you see them develop um, into their own little people. You just told me, I think, my favourite story in 79 episodes. That's a, that's a brilliant story. <laughs> oh, it's a cracker story. I'll show you the video afterwards. I would look forward to seeing that. Yeah. Do they – you said that you don't see yourself as the swimmer anymore. Have you had a chat with them about you as the swimmer? Are they aware of you as the swimmer? Uh, they are because other people have yes. told them along the way and they're sort of at ages now where I guess they can jump on a computer and search things. Have and you watched stuff with them? Uh, I've probably won not even an entire race but just a little bit of swimming. My daughter more found it funny that I was on Uncle Toby's ad selling muesli bars. <laughs> so she thought that was – she was looking at me like, this is bizarre. Dad, why did you do this? So she thought that was hilarious. Um, but it, it's funny. I think I was now four or five. I can't quite remember what the age was. Um, I said something – oh, someone said something about you, Dad, at school. And then – Charlie turned around and said, yeah, you're Grant Hackett. <laughs> and so I thought, <laughs> oh, people have obviously said something or shared something with them. So I find that's like, I, I almost find that intimidating. I don't want them to know and they don't care anyway, let's be frank. At the end of the day, they're still going to give you hell when they give you hell and they yes. give you love when they want to give you love. So um, that's that's the way it's always going to work. But, yeah, I think they're, they are, you know, a little bit more fascinated with it as they get a little bit older. We're drawing to a natural conclusion. I've just got one more topic and another question to ask you to finish. Um, Michael Phelps, mm. and it was publicised that you spent quite a bit of time with him mm. and you spent time in America with him. And I meant to look uh, 20, however many Olympic gold medals. 23. 23 mm. Olympic gold medals, which doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. Especially when you go, oh, who's second behind that? And it's Carl Lewis with nine, I think it is, then you same with eight. Tell me, if you don't mind, your your relationship with him and why was he able to do what he could do? Yeah. I'd, and <laughs> if you would like him to let him know, we'd love to have him on the Howie Games at some stage. I, <laughs> I think we, we could find time I'll for it. I'll him a message in do a that. sec. Do um, that. Uh, I can see why he is the way he is. Um, he is, you think my personality might be extreme on my approach and then meet Michael. So... Um, what with the with the second being failure? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And if he's second, he'll he'll just do he'll move heaven and earth to make sure he gets to first. And if you challenge him, if you say, "Oh, Michael's not that good," or this or that, or I can beat him, it will intensify his ability to be able to execute. And that's what's so dangerous about him. You get a lot of athletes where someone will, you know, give them a bit of something in the media and that might intimidate. It would intimidate most people when public stouches sort of happen. You get guys like him, and I, I know it with Ian Thorpe too is the same, when people might be critical or challenge them, it intensifies them in training. And their training then ability doesn't just equate to their racing. They're able to step up again, even above and beyond what they achieve in training. They intensify their execution. Um, and it's almost scary. So I knew two people I would never give public crap would be Phelps or Thorpe when I was racing them because you know it would just make them better. And that doesn't happen to most people. So that's one. The guy would not miss a thing. He was so focused, so committed. 200-meter butterfly take, for example, he had practiced that race and that world record so many times, dives in at Beijing, the goggles leak, can't see anything, closes his eyes, counts his strokes to the wall. 
breaks the world record, which was the world record until this year. I didn't know that. Yeah. So amazing story. I heard him, you know, because I lived with the guy for almost a year and I heard him when we went to one of the colleges and, you know, was sort of in the basketball court there and he told this story and how he closed his eyes and counted his strokes and couldn't see anything. And I said, oh, you've embellished that a bit, right? He goes, no, no, that's exactly what happened. I told that word for word. And so I was like, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> so wow. even I get fascinated with some of the stuff. And, you know, it's funny when you set the bar at a certain point in life and things you want to achieve, you usually don't go much past that. He'd set the bar so high that when he won six gold medals in 04, it was a failure because he wanted to beat Mark Spitz and win, win eight. He got six gold and two bronze and, and was a, depressed over it. And that's a failure. That's a failure. Gee, that's, that's a, a high, failure. So that's a high bar. Hey. It's a high bar, but he 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 believed in himself that he had the ability to be able to achieve it and he had the personality and drive to be able to live like that every single day. And then so he won eight in 2008. So, and then he got to 2012 and I think 2012 was more a reflection on how good he was in 08, all the training that he'd done because I don't think he was as focused then. But then he refo he went through his ups and downs as we all know. Mm. And then he went to, to 2016, an older athlete and still won five and a silver. So out of six races. So, and that was an incredible feat. I think that was his second best Olympics, even though he didn't quite have the medal count of two others outside of Beijing. Um, it was an incredible feat. So, yeah, and Michael and I, we just have an effortless relationship. We just get along well. We understand each other very well and we really support each other as, as friends more than anything else. And we have a passion for the sport and and his passion and drive is, is second to none. So he's just a, a remarkable human being and uh, what he's achieved I don't think we'll ever see um, repeat it again. I honestly can't see, I always say, don't say never, don't say impossible, but I'm just not sure that in my lifetime anyway, I'll watch another person win 23 gold medals, 28 medals in total over the course of five Olympic Games. I think sport is becoming so specific, even within the strokes of swimming. Mm. You just can't see it happening. You, do, you, like, you can't you, see that. Well, and to be frank, you can probably only come from the US and do that because you've got to have depth behind you to win relays, to yeah, win the team course. events as well. So, And I don't think any other nation around the world will ever have quite that. Three Olympic yeah, gold medals. It's crazy. I remember we're on all these golf stuff and his golf balls and everything, he's got 23. And I was like, oh, come on, mate. Don't don't try and be Michael Jordan. <laughs> And he looked at me and he was like, what, what? And I was like, mate, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I know you won 23 gold medals. But it's funny he's even made that number 23 right. even more famous. Right. There's something about that one. Maybe I should have used it somewhere along the line myself. Hey, normally at this part of the show, uh, my two kids who operate as the Pickle and the Big Penguin are their nicknames. I normally record questions and I play them to the guest. Um, but because we are straight back from holidays late last night, I don't have the questions on my phone, yep. which will disappoint the audience because they prefer their questions to mine. <laughs> Can you indulge me that I get them to record a question and I send it to you and you record an answer back and we play it here? Absolutely. We'd love to. Right. Fantastic. Done. Hi, Grant. Pickle here. I heard that when you were younger, you used to play in a band. At the moment, I'm learning the ukulele. My favourite song to play on the ukulele is the 12 Bar Blues. favourite song to play on the guitar? Pickle, congratulations on an outstanding piece of ukulele guitar there. 
Um, your 12-bar blues was absolutely exceptional. Um, very good question. What was my favourite song to play? Um, and I was thinking about that for a little bit, and it was actually a Metallica song called Nothing Else Matters, which you probably haven't heard of before, but you should put that on. That's Metallica, Nothing Else Matters. Uh, a great tune, pretty challenging to play on guitar, but it's completely awesome. Thank you very much for your question, and hopefully I've uh, been able to satisfy you with a decent answer. Hi, Grant Big Penguin here. I swam five laps of the 25-metre pool without stopping. I was cooked at the end. In one session, how far have you swum? All right, Penguin. Well, firstly, you're more like your dad than you'll ever know with that sort of question and the way you worded it. Um, I've had plenty of hard training sessions in my life, and the longest one that I've done was about 13 and a half kilometres. Um, and the main set that I did there was 250, so that's 250 metres on 35-second cycles. So that's every time I came into the wall, I had to make sure I was well inside 35 seconds and I went out the 35-second mark to do the next lap and did that 200 times. So it was a pretty big session and I was very, very cooked at the end of it. And to give you a little bit more insight, my biggest week that I probably did was around 100 kilometres as well. So plenty of kilometres up and down the pool. And thank you for your awesome question. We are blessed, and we spoke a lot about fatherhood, which I didn't expect in this podcast. Mm. We are blessed to have so many people listen to this show with their kids, and it fills me with absolute joy. So the podcast typically finishes, and it could be a three-hour answer, but we obviously don't have that time. (laughs) To the kids listening, Hacky, Mm. that want to achieve some success in some form of life, Mm. as someone that has achieved success in various forms of life, what would you say to them? My biggest probably message I would pass on to, to any young athlete or any any person who's aspiring to, to anything along the line is be clear on what you want to achieve and just know that you can achieve it. If you've got two arms, two legs and a heartbeat, you have the ability to be able to achieve anything you want and you really can and you've just got to believe it yourself. You don't have to need anybody else to believe in you. As long as you believe in yourself, set your goals, be firm about it and just dream big. Think, think big. I thought I thought big until I spoke to Michael Phelps <laughs> and he thought bigger and he achieved bigger. That's the way life works. So don't be afraid of your dreams and don't let anybody else tell you that you can't achieve them because you honestly can. You just got to be willing to commit, work towards them and do whatever it takes. I love the answer. Um, you don't do many interviews these days. Mm because it's reflecting, as you said, you don't consider yourself the swimmer anymore. What's it been like to um, have a chat oh, about fatherhood and life mm. but about moments that my generation will always remember that, that you were able to achieve? Oh, look, it's, it, it is actually nice to, to reflect Good. on life and it's nice because you. I walk away from these things and I kind of learn something new about myself because a lot of these things are thoughts, right? But when you speak about them out loud, you kind of take a, a new perspective on something. And I'm always trying to learn and grow and become a better person, better at what I do and, and all the rest of it. Um, but it's, it's really nice to think about those moments in history. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to be a part of the Sports Australia Hall of Fame and when I look around that room and the people that are in there, you get blown away and you look around the, the achievements and the milestones and just to be a, a small part of that is an absolute privilege and an absolute honour. So, yeah, it's always nice to... I always love talking about, you know, whether it's Races Within or what Michael's achieved. I I look around and think, wow, I was a part of such an amazing era and I'm just completely grateful for that. So I think 
I can, I'm hard on myself, as you can tell. Mm. Um, but I do look at those moments with a lot of gratitude as well. The fact that I had the opportunity to do that, to compete in Sydney, to race the likes of Kieran Perkins and do all those things. So, yeah, it's always good to, to reflect. I think it's healthy for the soul too. Privilege is a great word. The privilege has been all mine, mate. I know we've been trying to organise this for a while. You've blown me away. People are going to love the episode. You're a beautiful man. Good luck with your personal life with the birth of another son. Can't wait. Um, I'm sure it'll all go well for you and just let me know how to earn that 100 mil and then we can start talking. <laughs> oh, if you could let it. me know if you find out, that'd be great too. Thanks, Haki. I appreciate <laughs> Good on it. You. Cheers. That's it for episode 82 of the show. I have got a lot of love, a lot of love and admiration for Grant Hackett. Hope you do too after listening to his story. Thanks to old horse Darcy Thompson for putting this little baby together. The kid deserves a pay rise. Until Thursday, February 6th, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try Listener